Hi all, welcome to the I Didn't Know That Was The Last Time podcast. My name is Liz and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we will be using our title as the prompt for each episode. We'll hear from different people and they'll tell their stories about the moment they didn't realize would be the last. Our conversations will be around grief, coping with loss, self-care, and perseverance. Don't worry, we'll also have some funny stories because what is comedy but tragedy plus time? This episode is a personal story. If you want to know more about me, you can re-listen to our trailer and first episode. I had a hard time writing this episode. Ultimately, I decided a previous recording would be a better introduction. However, after listening to that recording, I discovered it was awful um, and decided to read a transcript and said, I wanted to do a stand-up for my dad's birthday this year. I was trying to find the best words to describe him, and I just kept landing on chaos. How else would you describe a man whose main form of humor is fart jokes? He's the pull-my-finger guy, and you might as well pull it because he was going to fart anyways. <laughs> when the internet was born, my dad discovered the fart machine. Yes, a remote-controlled speaker that has six distinctive farts, varying from short to wet and too many in between. I'm pretty positive that fart machine arriving in the mail was the happiest day of his life. <laughs> I remember it. I didn't know why he was so giddy the entire day. I found out at bedtime when he placed the fart machine in my sibling's bed and chaos ensued. Don't worry. It's not like he restricted himself to fart jokes. I think he actually preferred pranks. No one was off limits. It was more like a mission to bring the joy of chaos to everyone in his life. He became a semi-professional lockpicker with specific emphasis on his co-workers' lockers. Those pranks ranged from annoying, like the time he rigged an entire canister of airsoft bullets to empty as soon as it opened, all the way to disgusting, like the time he put a cup of his own poop in the very back of a top shelf of his co-workers' locker and created a false back so you can see the cup and watched all of his co-workers tear apart the break room, looking for the cause of this smell. My poor mom was struggling to keep the house afloat with three kids, my dad being the third kid because he had no intentions on being an adult. I wouldn't say he taught me that cursing was okay, but he wouldn't correct me or punish me if I made him laugh. <laughs> my dad honestly only had one main rule, and that was always enforced. We may not always like each other, but you always end the conversation with, I love you. We never hung up on my dad, but I have harshly yelled, I love you, when ending a conversation. Chaos is not all fun and games. It has a dark side. When my dad was injured and sick, I found out there's a right way to mend yourself and then there's painkillers. And even without the life experience I have now, I knew back then that things weren't going great. When as a 15-year-old on our way to a scouts meeting, I had to ask my dad to get off the sidewalk and let me take over the driving. I thought that was the worst thing he could have done to me. But then he had to go and set the bar for, like, the worst Christmas ever. Like, why couldn't he have died on Arbor Day? It's the last Friday in April. His birthday is the last day in April. Perfect for mourning. I should clarify. April 30th would have been my dad's 63rd birthday. If he didn't die at 47 on December 19th, 2006. I had one more day of finals before winter break and was looking forward to Christmas in six days. He wasn't feeling well that day. He stayed home from work and was sleeping a lot. 
When my mom got home, my dad asked her to call 911, and as the paramedics wheeled him out of the house, I made her sure to say, I love you, Dad, because that was the one rule, and I didn't want to hear about it when he'd get back. But he never made it back. I don't think the weight of his death hit me until a few days later when I felt my dad say goodbye in his own way. I had already signed up for a field trip with my school's drama class to see a live Broadway production in Hollywood. All the adults in my life agreed that I should go be with my friends and see the six-time Tony Award-winning show. And I had a great time exploring Los Angeles with my friends before the show. Everyone's dressed to the nines for the theater. Everything was beautiful at the Pantages. The musical starts, and it's immersive and beautiful, and I have goosebumps. It deserved every single award it received. Now, this might spoil it, but you've had enough time to see it by now. <laughs> but... By intermission, everyone on my trip felt immensely guilty for taking the kid whose dad died four days ago to a production of Disney's The Lion King, wherein the dad has a pretty spectacular death. <laughs> I was definitely trying to hold in the tears because I'm a stubborn 16-year-old who is not crying in front of their friends, but we all think I'm in the clear now <laughs> that the worst part is over. We settle into act two, and everything's going swell, until we reach a song written specifically for this musical. It's not on the VHS. The song is called They Live in You. In it, Rafiki tells Simba to have faith. They live in you. They live in me. They're watching over everything we see. In your reflection, they live in you. I was determined not to cry. You know, when you're holding it in and it's like inward hiccups, but then the musical theater does its thing and they take it up a key and bring more people on stage and the wall of sound is even louder and I'm doing everything I can to not cry. My breathing sounds manic, just gasping and blowing out air, but then the music calms, the ensemble clears, and the only people left on stage are Rafiki and Simba, and I think I'm in the clear. But the music swells even more. It goes up another keychain, and all the doors in the auditorium burst open. The ensemble re-enters dressed as giant animals, and birds are now flying over my head. It's an immersive and overwhelming experience, and the only word I could describe how I was feeling is chaos. And I completely lost any control I had. I was crying harder than I've ever cried. I was gasping for air as if I was drowning in my own tears. I have no idea how loud I was because I can only hear the wave of blood rushing to my ears. But after I emptied my tear ducts, the song was over and I felt like my dad was saying goodbye with causing one last chaotic moment for me. My dad was a large man. He left a big hole in my heart and I miss him every day. His life taught me to make sure those around me know I love them. His death taught me to ask the important questions and have your important conversations now because you never know when you'll get another chance. Like, after all these years, I'm still scratching my head as to know how my dad, being as large as he was, was logistically able to poop into a cup for the locker prank. And, like, why? <laughs> I'm Liz, and if you love someone, make sure they know. I learned stand-up from watching it with my dad, Robert, and joking with him. 
This set was originally recorded in May of 2022 at Annie Mays in Manhattan, Kansas. It's the best therapy I can afford, but there was far too much bar noise to use in that recording. Adults in my life had tried to admonish me for using the phrase, what would your father have to say about this? As long as I would have made him laugh, I guarantee I'm making him proud. My dad was a fun parent, and he had a twisted sense of humor. Robert did have a serious job, and he was seriously injured a couple of times. After a back surgery and a neck surgery, he was back to work. He was able to get back to work so quickly because this was also the start of the steady increase in the overall national opioid dispensing rate. Robert would get opioids prescribed for his back pain, and his mom, Lucille, would get an opioid prescription just for being old. Then when Robert wanted more pills, he would just call his mom and ask for more. Robert was consuming a concerning amount of painkillers, but the only person who understood the full impact was my mom, Julia. She would try to raise concerns with Lucille and other family members and friends, but Robert was quick to discredit her in a charismatic way. He was a fun parent. She was a strict parent. So this just left everyone to believe Julia is simply being overdramatic. If you can recall from the first episode, after the Christmas of 2004, we relaxed on our usual Sunday family traditions. Assuming it was the exhaustion from the holidays, Grandma was a bit too tired to make any family-sized meals, so we kept things small and visits short to give my grandma more time to rest her eyes. On Thursday, January 20th, 2005, Lucille told Milton she was going to rest her eyes for a bit. Later, Milton went to check on her and found that she had passed. You can hear how much this broke my heart in the last episode, but my dad was a mama's boy, and this turned his world upside down. My dad's health wasn't great before Lucille's death, but his health deteriorated after her death. He was constantly sick, in and out of the hospital. My mom would call the school to let them know, and because of her accent, I kept getting messages that said Dottie was in the hospital instead of Daddy. Admittedly, it does lessen the emotional blow. So on December 19, 2006, he had not felt well the entire day. He had stayed home from work and was sleeping a lot. When my mom got home, she saw my dad wasn't well and told me she would drive him to the ER. My dad then called out to her and asked her to call 911. When the ambulance arrived to take him back to the hospital, I thought nothing of it. We've been through this before. I remember being on the phone and placing my call on hold as I went to the hallway and made sure to say, I love you, Dad, as the paramedics wheeled him out of the house. It was the one rule the fun parent enforced, and I didn't want to hear about it when he'd get back. I didn't know that that was going to be the last time I said goodbye to my dad. My Aunt Allie from out of town called close to midnight. She asked me to stay up, but wouldn't tell me why. I thought it was weird, but it, I wasn't going to question any permission to stay up late on a school night. Our doorbell rang at 2 a.m. on the 20th, and I remember walking up and seeing police lights through our frosted glass on the front door. My mom was on our doorstep crying with two of my dad's supervising officers. And I just compartmentalized the whole thing. <laughs> I went into hostess mode. <laughs> I invited everyone in, and I put coffee on, and I set out a Danish butter 
cookies tin. Or, you know, at least just the tin. I called my high school boyfriend and it wasn't until I said the phrase, I don't have a dad anymore, that I finally started crying. I asked him to pick me up for our last day of finals because I noticed that my mom didn't come home with her car. She came home in a police cruiser. My Aunt Allie arrived soon after and asked if I wanted to ride to the hospital to see my dad. I'm very thankful, and I took that offer. At the hospital, she walked in before me and noticed equipment still attached to my dad. She pulled the curtain back and flagged down some passing staff. I remember her asking them to clean my dad up, and I remember the look on his face said, No, I don't want to. That's not my job. And then she gestured back to me to let them know I was his daughter and that she shouldn't have to see him like that. The staff softened and removed the recitation device from my dad's face, and I dragged the chair from the hallway over to his bedside, and I held my dad's hand. He was still warm. And I got really angry. Just that silent anger that builds right before a reasonably calm person flips a table. I wanted him to hold my hand really badly. And I was getting angry that he wouldn't. I was angry at the long list of things he wouldn't do for me now. There's the big things like he wouldn't be at my graduation or at my wedding. But little things like he wouldn't be coming home to watch Buffy with me anymore. It felt... Like I was playing by life's rules and this wasn't supposed to happen. I was angry because this wasn't fair. As an adult, it's clear my dad wasn't doing well and was developing an addiction to painkillers while going through what some would call a midlife crisis. When Robert's closest confidant, Lucille, had passed, Robert's already not great health got so much worse. I'm convinced that Robert was depressed, and as anyone in a deep depressive episode will tell you, the aches and pains can be unsettling. He would then take more painkillers to numb the body pains to make it in and out of bed and through a shift. If he wasn't at work, he was in the hospital because of how badly he was feeling. Towards the end, he ran out of sick time and started using vacation time to stay in the hospital while the doctors tested to find out what was wrong with him. As much as I wish my dad was with me today, I know he's at peace and in a better place. My dad was a fun parent who strictly enforced only one rule. You always say I love you when saying goodbye. My dad was an officer and we didn't know if he would come home every day. The rule was no matter the situation, even if you're mad, you end the conversation with I love you. That way, your last words are always I love you. I'm very thankful for this rule. This rule is the only reason I put down the phone and said I love you as he was being wheeled away. And now I get to sit here confidently and know that my last words to him were the phrase I love you. To keep the phrase I love you from losing meaning, I know I can't say it to literally every acquaintance. Instead, I say I'll miss you bunches because I still want to ensure every conversation ends with kind regards and well wishes. But that would sound weird to say out loud. His death has forever changed my life, in both good and not great ways. I wanted to share some stories that are unscripted, 
because everything that I write is scripted, so I don't ramble. But with this episode, it was really hard to write everything down because there's just so much about a person's life. So when it comes to my dad and that vacation time, it really hurt me because he missed a lot of my birthdays. He had training during the same time as my birthday, and it would be something that's totally schedulable, but he wouldn't let my mom know until the last minute and typically after the party had already been scheduled. It was one of those things that didn't quite make me feel special, but definitely could be a reason why I got into comedy. <laughs> it's also why I value any time I have home with my family versus time I have away. It's incredibly special to me. When my dad would come home from work, we would bum rush the door. We would literally get to the other side of the house, the furthest we could get away from the door. As soon as we heard the garage door, the metal one, start clicking up and open, we would run complete opposite side of the building, me and my sibling. And as soon as the garage door would squeak open with my dad walking into the house, we would run as fast as we could trying to beat each other, yelling daddy's home and attack him with a bear hug. And we did this all the way up until the day he passed. Because even as a teenager, it was something that was really fun to be a part of. And that's also what made the day after my dad's death a little bit harder than the day of receiving the news. Is because that's when I realized I would never be bum-rushing the door again. And that made me not really ever want to be home again. And that's when I started getting over-involved in everything I could at school, all the activities, all the clubs, any side curricular event I could do, I was there. And I continued doing that through my adult life until I burned myself out, essentially. And then I found my husband, and I finally feel like I'm home again. And now the way I honor my dad in this way is every time I come home, my doggies get to bum rush me and I get to yell I'm home to them. And I'm just really glad that that part is special for me now. But there's other things that my dad's death has caused, like Christmas is just weird. I have a hard time putting up Christmas decorations. The year that he had passed away, he was actually too sick to take down the Christmas tree um, it was up a ladder in the garage rafters and he was the tallest person and strongest of the household. So he should be the one taking it down as my mom said, but he wasn't able to. And he ended up passing away a few days before Christmas. So we had no energy and I'm really thankful that my friend's mom and teacher Mrs. B took me out to Walmart and she was like, you, you know, get, you've got $20, get yourself a Christmas gift. And I picked out this indoor outdoor Christmas tree 
And every time I see it, it makes me cry a little. I really want to buy it, but it hurts because I don't want it <laughs> at the same time. It's a real fun thing with grieving. But I'm sure you've seen it before. It's just a white metal tree with sticks of light coming off of it, multicolored. And it was just enough to feel like Christmas. And also really sad. <laughs> but I love the Christmas spirit because of my grandma. I love the way that she made Santa come alive. Because that's what my dad and I missed the most as soon as she was gone was that first Christmas without her. And I can't help but keep Santa alive and all the children that I see. I love making sure that they understand the magic of Christmas. And it's not just Christmas and the holiday. It's the spirit of giving and being with each other. So I enjoy and lean into those parts. But Christmas Day is really hard. I also uh, have a hard time keeping secrets um, because of the painkillers that my dad was involved with. I just didn't like that type of household, and I'm sure that anyone who's had to keep those things in a wrap can relate that it's not healthy to keep those types of things under wraps. They always fester in different ways. And I know that my dad didn't really try to win the best dad award and that's okay because I still love him and I still miss him but I'll always speak the truth about him because I'm the one that's left dealing with all of this when he left I had never felt more alone I felt like a lost child like a like a child child, like a seven-year-old child. It felt like drifting in space. No one else was around. And it made me never want to hold another hand again and feel that alone again. It makes me not want to stick around with the relationships I have because I just feel like they're going to let go. But I have to remember that we need to hold on to the people who love us while we have them. And if they let go, then that's part of life. But I hate this feeling. And I never want anyone to feel this way. And it's the reason why I talk about his death and all the weird stuff around it. It's to help connect myself to others who have gone through similar situations. It's my motivation for this podcast to be a reminder that you're not alone. If you need help, you can speak with someone today. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is a United States-based suicide prevention network of over 200-plus crisis centers that provides 24-7 service via a toll-free hotline with the number 988. I'm really glad that we're able to get this easy 988 number to remember because... When I was in the depths of my depression, I didn't have the energy to Google their old number, so I texted home to 741-741 to reach a volunteer crisis counselor who helped me reach a calmer mindset. I just wanted to throw it out there for anyone who may find themselves in the same spot. Remember, you're not alone.
To all my friends wanting to support others who are going through a loss, there is one request from 16-year-old Liz. So this may not apply to all of your loved ones, but for me, it'd be great if the question, how'd he die, is either the very last question or never asked at all. Ask how they're doing and if they need help with anything. If they say they're fine and no, maybe they have it handled, but likely telling the truth would take a lot more of emotional energy. They may not want to talk about any of it. They may be all hugged out by random strangers. There's just so many different ways people grieve. So whatever you do, make sure the core of your message comes across with nothing but love and support. Asking questions like how'd he die made me feel more like a piece of hot gossip to pass along rather than a child who felt lost and alone and devastated she would never, ever hug her dad again. If you're confused on what to talk about, you can just be there and listen. You don't need to make sense of this wild loss in our world. And sometimes after memorials and services, it's easy to get talked out and touched out. And that's fine because we're missing the physical presence of the one person so it's nice to just have another person in the room. You can offer to watch a favorite movie together or binge trash TV while playing around on your phones. You can also put important dates in your phone and remember to text them or make plans with them because it's not just the first holiday without a loved one that hurts. It's the first birthday without them. It's the first flat tire without them. The first heartache without them. And it's not just the first one. It's the second one and the third and so on. And it will hurt differently and hopefully less as time passes, but we'll never forget our loved ones and it brings comfort knowing we aren't the only ones thinking about them. So to all my friends experiencing loss, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know how you feel, but I can understand the complex emotions you're working through. As we start the new year, I wanted to take a moment and talk to the folks who are still feeling the weight of last year's emotions on their body. Grief, depression, anxiety all linger in our bodies as we work through these emotions. For more information on this, I suggest reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk. I only bring this up to remind you to connect with your body. When I was in the can't get out of bed phase, I used to use the local library's Libby app to listen to this book. While listening, I would do lions and raisins in bed. I would ball my hands into fists, curl my body inward, face squished and puckered as a fish, as if I'm shriveled up like a raisin. Then I would slowly stretch into a big pouncing lion, with my mouth wide open and eyebrows to my hairline, and then I would relax to neutral. My other big suggestion is however you're coping, make sure you're going about it the healthy way. Painkillers, alcohol, relationships, and sex are pain-numbing agents, but you won't need them if you work through these emotions your body is carrying. I literally can't list all the reasons why it's so important to stay connected to your body, and that's why I suggested an entire book of reasons. And this is a suggestion I wish I could have given my dad after my grandma passed. So a final note, whoever is cleaning my dad's headstone, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. If you like this episode, give it a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media. Our handles everywhere is at Last Time Podcast. 
If you have any feedback or want to reach out to me, you can email us at lasttimepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'll miss you bunches.